If you would with me this morning, turn to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is just five verses. As you turn there, let me remind you that we are looking at Psalm 15 after two weeks ago looking at Psalm 14. In Psalm 14, we were reminded that no one is good. In fact, we were told three different times, not even one is good. In the context of Psalm 14, we come to Psalm 15 where there's a legitimate question that arises. Again, this is the same author, David, in Psalm 14, he said, there is no righteous man. In Psalm 15, he asked the question, who can approach God? In other words, is there any way that we can breach the divide between a holy God and sinful man? Well, follow along as I read. It might not provide all the answers that you need, but it gives us this meditation. David writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears, in his own to, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So we consider these words. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Lord, you have promised that the one who comes into your presence will never be moved. We pray, Father, that we might trust in that promise. But Lord, we also pray that as we discuss these words, think about them in our hearts and ponder them in our thoughts. Father, we pray that you will give us wisdom, you will give us grace, you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word. Lord, I pray that anything spoken from this pulpit today that is not consistent with your words may be gone and never heard from again. But Lord, may your word stand forever as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you remember in the Old Testament one of the famous passages of all of Scripture when Moses is standing before the burning bush and God says to him, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. You see, throughout the narrative of Old Testament history, those who truly understand the holiness of God tremble at the thought of approaching him. If you understand, as the author of the Hebrews does, that our God is a consuming fire, if you understand that God is holy, if you understand that the same God who came down to Mount Sinai and warned the people that if they were to approach him unworthily, then even arrows might strike them through. There were great thunders and rumblings and the warning voice of God, even quaking of the mountain itself. You would understand that God is not easily approached. How in the world... Can someone truly come into God's presence? You see, this is the question that's asked here by David. 
He asks this question two different ways. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Really, the question is this. How can we have fellowship with God? This is the question of the first verse. Then most of the rest of the psalm is going to tell us the qualification for someone to have fellowship with God. And then finally, the last phrase gives us that promise for those who have fellowship with God. First of all, the question. After all, we have to know the question before we can figure out the answer, right? So here's the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? This is actually the idea of coming to worship. Who can come to worship him? This is a reference to the tabernacle or to the tent of God. And it's interesting, the word that's used here is the word sojourn. That is, it's a temporary thing. It's, It's where you're going temporarily, in this case, to worship him. In fact, there are those who would say that perhaps this is in reference to the tabernacle. David is asking that question in a liturgical fashion so that when you come and you come prepared to worship him, you ask that question, how can I come and dwell in your tent to worship you? The second phrase or second part of this question, who shall dwell on your holy hill? You see, it's not just coming to worship, it's actually living with the holy God. The word to dwell, that is to live with or stay with, remain with him. Not only who can come to you and act as a foreigner in your presence, not able to come on their own merits, but who can actually stay with you and live with you and dwell with you. That is the question that this psalm is asking. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we know that those who approach God unworthily or those who sought to live with God in an unholy fashion were in grave danger. We could think of Korah and his followers, who in their self-righteousness and in their desire to be leaders were swallowed up by God's wrath. We could think of the men of Beth Shemesh when the ark returned from the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6 and the ark that had been taken for granted by being taken into war by an unworthy people and captured by the wicked Philistines. When the Philistines returned that ark, there were men in Beth Shemesh that opened and looked in that ark and God struck them. From the Hebrew, it's unclear whether it was 70 men or 50,000 70 men perished because they looked in the ark of God. And then, of course, you come to Acts 5, lest you think it's just an Old Testament phenomenon, when Ananias and Sapphira come before Peter, and they say, we have sold a property, and here it is, all it is for the glory of God, in essence. And, of course, they were lying. The Holy Spirit knew it, and he struck them down dead, lest the whole church... Should in pride come, the whole church feared God because he has the power to strike down even those who profess to believe in him. So the question is, who can come and who can dwell? Now here's the answer, beginning at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now this is general character, isn't it? First of all, Walking blameless. That means, and yes, blameless means perfection. 
Someone who is morally perfect. Someone who is without blemish. Someone who is walking such a way that all those around him know that he's done nothing wrong. Raise your hand if you're blameless. Sometimes we think we are in certain situations. But David says here, he who walks blameless. In other words, he's walking in such a way that when God looks at him, he sees someone that is following the commands of God with a whole heart. In other words, someone who who not only reads Psalm 119 in, in its entirety, but actually follows all the things that are described there. Okay, so that's one characteristic. The second one is that he's practicing righteousness. The word does here is just like the word, in other words, this is a constant measure of who you are. Now you are practicing righteousness. Now, this sounds much the same, doesn't it? What is righteousness? Something that is right in the eyes of God and something that has a positive characteristic of following the law. In other words, when you follow the law, if you break the law, you have sinned and lack righteousness. But if you complete and follow the law, then you have righteousness. In other words, not only is someone not breaking the law and is perfect in his actions, he's also completing the law in a positive sense. And so he's doing all the things that the law requires. He is practicing righteousness. Now, I have to say, I, I watched yesterday uh, several high school uh, individuals across from across the state of South Carolina run a cross-country race, a 5K race. And I have to say, I doubt there was any runner who came to the starting line having never run the race before. It was a state meet. Instead, they had to practice. They had to practice it and do it over and over and over again. So not only is this someone who is walking a blameless life, he's been doing this for some time. He's been practicing righteousness, and it's something that comes as second nature to him. And then the third qualification, he speaks truth in his heart. Again, it's an I-N-G word, speaking truth in his heart. Now, For some of us, we like to tell others, my word is my bond. And some of us may carefully choose our words, and we may speak truth at least most of the time. But this is someone who speaks the truth not only with words, but he speaks the truth in his own heart. It's not just what you say when you're careful with your tongue. It's also what you're thinking. This is what it means to speak in your heart What are you thinking when you say something about somebody you disagree with and you're saying something about it to somebody else but you're thinking something else in your heart that's not speaking truth? When you only say the things out loud that you want other people to hear and there's something else going on in here, you're not speaking the truth. In fact, even the little category, I remember saying this in a sermon years ago, when you go up to the grocery line and the grocer asks you, well, how are you today? And if you're feeling awful and you've lost your pet and you're, you're, you're just describing terrible things in your heart and you say to the cashier, you say, oh, I'm just fine. 
What is the truth in your heart? So in other words, this general character, walking blameless, practicing righteousness, speaking truth in his heart, when you hear just that verse as a qualification for coming to dwell with God, it sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But that's not enough. Here are the rest of the qualifications. First of all, these, this was general character. Now these are actions reflecting this character. He says, who does not slander with his tongue? He will not slander upon his tongue. The word slander can also be translated the word gossip. How many people here have never gossiped? How many people here have never said something about somebody else that wasn't true? Or has never said something about somebody else that did not demean them or put them down unjustly? It says, he will, if we're speaking truth not only in words, but also in our heart, we will take at face value the things that we know to be true and lovely and honorable and noble, even about somebody else. He will not slander with his tongue. He also is someone who did no evil to his friend. Now, I have to say, if it wasn't enough to think about you being not blameless or whatever, when you think about your relationship with somebody else and, and you think about uh, your, your, perhaps a neighbor that you're close to or a friend or comrade, companion or whatever, to think that you never did anything bad with that person? It could be. He raised no scorn upon his near one. Now, of course, ours suggests that this is a friend. I think this could either be a neighbor or a relative, or perhaps a friend as is ever raised up disgrace upon that person. You know, the way we talk about our wife to somebody else should be like this. But we need to be reminded of this, don't we? There are times when I've disagreed with my wife, and sometimes when I'm talking with somebody else, I'm tempted to say something about my wife that I should not say. And I'm sure... Ten times as much, she has this. So verse 3, following up on the general character, verse 2, verse 3 just tells us how we talk about, use our tongue, and how we think about and act with somebody else. But if you think that's not enough, verse 4 then makes it very clear what our character is supposed to be like in relationships. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. We're going to get the last phrase in a minute. First of all, he will despise one being rejected. Now, when I first read this, I thought, boy, that sounds terrible. Somebody's rejected over here, maybe persecuted, oppressed, or whatever. He, he, he just rejects. Hey, you're not a Christian. I, I just despise you. That, that's not what he's talking about here. He's recognizing that someone has discernment. He knows the difference between someone who is following God and someone who is rejecting God. And because he's following God, then he is the one who is fearing the Lord. And that person is honored by the one who comes into the presence of God. 
But the one who is rejected by God because he's not following God, in a sense, there is a, a despising of the righteous person to that person. At our hearts, those who are being rejected by because of their wickedness. Of course, in that, there's also the self-reflection. Am I someone who's rejected or am I someone who's fearing the Lord? And that's found, in a sense, in the next phrase. Here's the next part. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. There's two things here. First of all, he will swear even to hurt. And, of course, this means he is someone who will swear even to his own detriment. You see, this is Christ-like behavior What did Jesus do when he came onto this earth to suffer for the sake of sinners? He swore by himself that he would follow and carry through with God's plan of salvation, which included his rejection, his scorn, his crucifixion, his betrayal, all the things in that package. He was willing to do that even to his own cost, his own hurt. So in other words, our character and relationship is that our word is so much above. Today's Faith Promise Day. Some of you may be thinking of a particular number to give to Faith Promise. Next year, the financial situation in your personal finances may hinder you or provide some barriers to you to give that particular amount And, of course, we understand that you you are to give in the Lord's providence, but there is a sense here when you pledge that, even if it's to your own detriment, you have to make decisions. Do I keep that pledge or do I not? That's why it's called a faith promise. Even to your own hurt, your own detriment. And then he says he does not change. He will not change. In fact, the word here is, is exchange in many contexts or change. In other words, he models the character of God. God is not a man that he should sin or that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. In other words, he's not going to change from one thing to another. He, when he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, what, should, what commandment should I keep in order to gain life? And Jesus began to quote to him the relational commandments adultery, murder, and so forth. And of course, you know what the rich young ruler said. He says, all these I've kept since my youth. He said, I'm walking blamelessly. I have righteousness. And yet he went away sad. Why? Because his material possessions had become an idol to him. And verse 5 refers to this. This individual... His character and relationships are also played out in his character in the community as he understands even his financial situation. He says he does not put out his money at interest. The idea is there is no abuse by the Old Testament term called usury. ...of poverty in which they could not provide for themselves and liberally... Liberally, the Israelite who had resources was to share with those who didn't. And they were told not to give out a loan with interest. 
That is, in other words, as they seek to meet the needs mercifully of those in need around them, they don't give it with strings attached and they don't make money or profit off of such a loan. To do so could make them vulnerable to being expelled from the people of God. He does not put out his money at interest. No abuse by usury. The other is this. He does not take a bribe against the uh, the innocent. There's no abuse by bribery. So usury and bribery in community were considered very bad. And of course, bribery is one of the key sins of the leaders, particularly the judges of the people throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. It's one of those great sins. So again, this character in community, he's generous to others. He's in our own families. I can think of one illustration. My father was uh, someone who loved math and some of the things that happened with financial tables and all those things. I remember as a young person, for whatever reason, I had money in my bank account and my siblings didn't have enough to buy their first car. So in essence, my money bought the first car of both my brother, who was 13 years older than me, and of my sister, who was 8 years older than me. And I remember my dad had control of the accounts and all that, and he set it up, and I think he set it up so that they would not that it was innocent. He's thinking, well, you know, your younger brother's helping you. He should be paid for this and, and so forth and so on. I don't remember if I got the interest and all those other things. But, but even those little details, he wasn't thinking about it. So the answer is, when we look at all these qualifications, you walk blameless, you practice righteousness, you speak truth in your heart, you don't slander anybody, you do no evil to your friend, you raise no scorn upon someone close to you, Uh, you despise those who are rejected by God, you honor those who fear the Lord, You you will swear even to your own hurt, your word is your truth, you will not change In community, you will follow the standards of God's holiness when it comes to finances and money. You will not take you. I'm not worthy to come through those doors. If you're a pastor, you have heard somebody in your community say, I'm not good enough to come to church. And one thing we can tell them is you're absolutely right. No one fits the mold. That was the whole lesson of Psalm 14. There's no one, no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who fits the mold. And we can tell them that person who's struggling with coming in and darkening the doors of the church because they're not worthy to come, we can tell them, neither is anybody else who comes. I'm certainly not worthy. You guys certainly aren't worthy. No one is worthy. No one fits this qualification. No one by right can just walk through the curtain that leads to the most holy place of God's presence. Nobody can just dive into the burning bush untended without taking their sandals. Is this Psalm 4? Is it to tell us that nobody around us has any hope to come before God? No, it's like the law, isn't it? It's like the law because the law points us to the fact that we're sinners. The Holy Spirit uses the law. The first way in which he uses the law is to tell us we're dreadful sinners. And that's what the law does. This psalm reflects the law. When we look at this, we understand we're not walking blamelessly. We're not those who have not gossiped to our neighbor. We're not any of those things. So it convicts us of our sin. 
But it all points us to our need for righteousness. It means that they have to have a positive account regarding the law before God. In other words, they can't have any... We have to have righteousness in our account to go to heaven. So it points us and convicts us by God's Holy Spirit that we're sinners. It reminds us or shows us that we need righteousness. And then it also points to the fact that there is a judgment to come. It's all found in John 16, the job of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses the word to do these things. And of course, when we see these things, we're reminded, assembly this morning, you have no right to be here on your own merits. You have no right to be here on your own righteousness. You have no reason to consider yourself self-salvation in your efforts. And yet there's this promise at the end. He says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Here's the promise. First is the, to the one doing these things. And again, does this mean David's writing this to remind us we're all just horrible people and we're, we just have no hope? You know, go home, everybody. No, that's not what he's doing. He also says he will not ever be made in the sense of this to stagger to some. He won't be made in presence on his holy mountain. He's going to stay there in the tent worshiping God forever. What wonderful things. David writes in Psalm 51, 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He says, I don't want to be moved. I don't want to leave your presence. Better is it to dwell in your house for one day than, than a thousand elsewhere. The promise never to be moved. So, so where can we get these qualifications? This is the great thing about Scripture. What does this passage do? Like the law, it points us to our need. And of course, it reminds us of our Savior. Who is the one who fulfilled all these things? Who walked blamelessly, spoke truth in his heart, even swore to his own hurt? Who did all this without sin? He was blameless. He is the one person that will never be moved. The one person that will never be displaced. And in that moment, he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this is Reformation Sunday. What better place to be reminded? What tells us these truths about our need for Christ? It's the scriptures. No other place do we get this. The scriptures which are God's word. The scriptures which reveal the truth of the gospel that no other book in the face of the earth can. Creation can't reveal these things. Although they reveal the existence of God, they don't reveal the plan of salvation. Scripture reminds us alone. What is it that gives us hope from this passage? not be clear here in this passage. It's a mirror that gives us the, the shadows of the things to come. And it reminds us, what is the one? Did we have any right or privilege to this? Did we follow any of these things? No. It's by grace alone. Not by our works, lest any man should boast. It's only because God had grace on sinners. Why is it that I'm saved or you're saved? It's not because of anything you've done. It's not because you're better than anybody else. It's just because God and his providence and his elective purposes chose you to accept team. Very clearly telling us there's no one righteous. Verse or chapter 15 then tells us, well then what can we do about it? 
And the essence is nothing. Because we fail every single one of these qualifications until the blood of Christ. You see, sometimes we in the Reformed circles talk about the third use of the law. Once you have placed your faith in the one person who fulfilled these things and that great transaction took place where Jesus took your sins and gave you his righteousness so that when God sees you, he doesn't see the you, the old self, who breaks all these things and can't complete these things. Now he sees his son in you so that he looks at you and he says, oh, I see that you have the righteousness of Christ in you. You are the one who, because of Christ, are walking blamelessly, speaking truth in your heart, not slandering others, not doing those things that were forbidden. And then he looks at you and he says, I want you to exhibit this Christ-like behavior even now in this time before the fullness of his glory has come to redeem the world The third use of the law is this. We look at this psalm by faith and we say these are the ideals and the models by which God wants us to live. And so now if you have trusted in the one good man, Jesus Christ, you should by God's grace and a sanctifying work of his spirit seek to do these things to glorify him because you are maintaining that fellowship with God not by your works and your efforts but by the Holy Spirit working in you and God's promises that you will never be moved. Not because of you but because of Christ in whose name we pray. Father, we thank you for these great words of truth. We thank you that Jesus is 